Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 30th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In the last few presentations in the series, we have been discussing particular passages in the New Testament where certain terms are mistranslated or misunderstood, and which also adversely affect the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the entire New Testament. Now we have finally reached the epistles of Paul, where more such mistranslations or poor interpretations are found than in any other of the books of the New Testament. Many of these had to even be purposeful, as they are quite blatant. There are actually many more mistranslations in Paul than what we will present here. Here, we will only focus on those which concern race, nation, and the scope and purpose of the gospel. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, still got more mistranslations in the Bible. Uh, we're finally on to Paul's epistles. Obviously, these are the worst translated, as uh, it becomes very clear with the right translations that Paul was naming all these places he's going and all the people as actual Isra Israelites, right? The lost tribes. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, or as we rightly call it, the nations, the dispersed Israelites. And that's why this. these are probably the, the most important important ones when you really clear it up right bill well well absolutely it, it's um very clear in many passages that we've already discussed in paul's epistles that he is taking the gospel to the nations of scattered israel in europe we've already discussed galatians chapter 4 we've already discussed first corinthians chapter 10 and we'll discuss that a little more today just to repeat it to drive that point home we've already discussed um romans chapter four and romans chapter one in that light it's very clear that he's taking this gospel to people that were at one time whose ancestors were israelites but the churches they ignore those passages they ignore paul's statement about the hope having been persecuted for the hope of the 12 tribes in Acts chapter 26. They don't teach on those passages. They only go to certain passages taken out of context where Paul talked about or mentioned all men and, and such things like that. And Paul is not meaning all men, everybody on the planet. He's only meaning all men of the Greco-Roman world who are descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. It's the scope and purpose of the gospel as stated in, as we discussed in our last, in, in, in two presentations ago, I believe, of Luke chapters one and two. So the, you can't have it one way or the other in Paul's epistles. You can only understand Paul's epistles if you accept the entire context and not just these little 
passages. Oh, Jesus loves everybody. Oh, Jesus came for everybody. No, that's simply not true. And, and that's contrary to the words of Christ himself. So once we go through Paul's epistles and, and, and discuss some of these passages, we're not going to discuss every one. We, we ha I have 121 podcast series of commentaries, 121 podcasts on Paul's epistles. And in that series, I discussed every passage. We can't do that here, but we could pick out the major ones that they like to exploit, which are actually mistranslated or seriously misinterpreted. So that's our objective here. And that means that we should skip Roman 1, Romans chapter 1, which we've already discussed. We should go right to Romans chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. I don't know if you have anything to say before I begin with that. And <laughs> um, there was something I only like just recently realized, and that is if the Romans were Judah and primarily, you know, descended from Zara, then... In a way, all the dispersed Israelites that didn't have the Lord, they got ruled over eventually by Judah. And then all the lost tribes were still under the descendants of David, right? So, so Perez. So the whole house of Israel has always kind of been ruled by Judah <laughs> for all time, right? Well, well right. For, for the most part, um we cannot trace the genealogy of every single king. But if you read the classics, and I have to speak in very general terms here, I do have these citations in some of my papers, my historical papers. I don't have them all in my head. It, if you read the classics, you'll learn that the Phoenician settlements in Anatolia, and I'm speaking of the Carians, the, the Phoenicians of, of Miletus, and I'm speaking of the Colicians explicitly, had taken their kings from the princes of the Trojans. And that's stated explicitly in the ancient Greek and Roman classics, or, or Greek classics, I should say. So if they took their kings from the significance from the princes of the Trojans, the significance of that is that we having, even though the evidence is thin, we have evidence in history that the Trojans had come from the ancient Israelites. And the evidence in Paul's epistle to the Romans is absolutely clear that they came from the ancient Israelites. Now, Paul of Tarsus had access to a lot more works of the classics than we do. If you read writers from around the time of Paul, such as Strabo and Diodorus Siculus, there were hundreds and hundreds of books of history at their time that they quoted that are lost now. We don't have them today. So they've been lost since Paul's time. Paul had access to them. He had access to a much greater breadth of ancient historical literature than we could possibly ever access because that work is gone. That there's no locating it, even though these works were mentioned by historians contemporary to Paul's time. 
So they must have had them. So that that's that that's um where Paul can be verified historically. We have solid evidence of that. So we can't assume that he's making up the other stuff. We can't assume that he just made up the statements he, he, by which he identified the Romans as Israelites. We can't assume he made those statements up in Romans chapter 1, especially when we can connect the dots. So later in history, we had um, Justinian. And this is just an example where I have a definite connection, right? We have the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. Justinian actually was more responsible for the formation of the modern Roman Catholic Church than any other emperor before him, except perhaps for Constantine, who signed the Edict of Toleration and organized the Council of Nicaea. Justinian is the man, the emperor, who had given, he created the primacy of the Bishop of Rome as Pope. Justinian created that. He put that into law, and it had the force of law throughout the entire subsequent history of the Byzantine Empire. So he created the papacy. Well, well Justinian is said by Procopius, who is a member of his court, of his administration, and was secretary to the general Belisarius in all of his war efforts. Well, well, just Procopius said that Justinian was from the tribe of the Dardanians in Illyria. Now, the tribe of the Dardanians are, are Dardans. They came from the Trojans. They were a colony of the ancient Trojans. So we see that Trojan connection is visible in some of the ancient rulers and, and kings in ancient times, that just as Julius Caesar had a claim that he descended from the Trojan prince Ahenius, there's a legitimate claim that Justinian also descended from the Trojans. So that, that's a digression, but... That's history. Now, as for the rest of them, I mean, we can't prove one way or another. It's difficult. It, it's beyond our grasp, but there is evidence of this, that these Trojans did supply the princes and kings of the ancient world, and that the Trojans are of the tribe of Judah. Okay, with that, we should probably commence with one of the first major mistranslations in the epistle to the Romans, which is found in chapter 2 in verses 9 and 10. There will be tribulation and distress. These are the words of Paul, warning the, that the European world or the Roman world, as the gospel is being spread, there would be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. That's the King James Version. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. 
And here, the word Jew should really be Judean. It's speaking of the actual the actual Israelites in Judea in the context of Paul's epistle. And he explains this later on in chapter 9. He doesn't care about the Edomites in Judea. He identifies them as vessels of destruction. He only cares about, in Romans chapter 4, his kinsmen, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 9, his kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. So we have to read within the context of Paul's epistle that there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also it says of the Gentile in the King James Version and not Greek. The King James Version portrays Paul as contrasting Jews and Gentiles. Paul is actually contrasting Judeans, Judean Israelites, and Greeks, not Gentiles or non-Greeks. The King James Version had translated both occurrences of the word Hellene in this passage, Romans chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, as Gentile. How could they do that? The contrast Paul is making is actually of Judean and Greek. The word Hellene, which is the Greek word for Greek, they translated it as Gentile instead of Greek, which is absolutely dishonest. Paul consistently used the Greek word ethnos, to refer to nations. And the King James Version frequently translated ethnos as Gentile, or sometimes heathen, or nation, everywhere it appears. But this word, Hellene, Hellene is a specific word, meaning Greek. It doesn't mean anything else. And, and I actually read, when I read Romans 2, verses 9 and 10, a few minutes ago, I actually read the corrected version. I should have read the King James Version. The King James Version says, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace to every man that works good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So that's the King James Version, but it's patently dishonest because that leads you to believe that Paul is speaking of Jews and non-Jews. The denominational Christians, they interpret that word Gentile to mean non-Jews, which is also a lie because ethnos means nation, and a lot of times it applies to the nation of Israel or the nations of Israel. But here it doesn't say ethnos, it says Hellene. And Paul is only speaking of Judeans and Greeks, not 
Judeans and Gentiles or Jews and non-Jews. So that's a blatantly um, mistranslated word here, writing Helene as Gentile. And, and it's blatant and it's criminal because it gives you the entirely wrong impression of Scripture. And they must have done that on purpose. You cannot translate Helene as Gentile. So Paul was just saying that they're the same race. Well, well they are the Judeans, same race, right? The good ones Paul, and Greeks. Right. Paul is focusing on them. He's not extending the gospel to everybody. He's focusing on Judeans and Greeks. And as we've also shown in, in earlier in the series, and we'll discuss it in brief later on this evening, the Greeks also came from the ancient Israelites, or at least many of the tribes of the Greeks came from the ancient Israelites. And why wouldn't Paul, taking his gospel to the scattered sheep of Israel, compare Judeans and Greeks when he's writing to Romans, who, who the Romans, even though you're going to, yeah, you might think, well, the Romans aren't really Greeks, and the Romans did indeed descend from the Trojans. There were the, the majority of the people in the Italian peninsula were originally Greek. And even reading Livy's History of Rome, at a very early time, many Dorian Greeks had gone to Rome and settled there and intermingled with the original Romans. The common language in Rome itself was Greek, where Latin was the language of government and the military and the Roman priesthood, which was really part of the government. So speaking of Greek in this sense, Paul is really speaking from a cultural viewpoint and not from an ethnic viewpoint. And that's also true because the word Hellene to a Greek did not indicate ethnicity. It never indicated ethnicity. There were four or at least four original tribes of Greeks who identified themselves distinctly from the others. If you were an Ionian Greek, a, a Japhethite descended from Javan in Genesis chapter 10, if you were an Ionian Greek, you were an Ionian and you stayed with your own race even though culturally you shared a similar language. It wasn't really the same. It, it Actually, there were distinct dialects of ancient Greek, but you spoke a similar language and had similar pagan beliefs with your neighbors who may have been Dorians or Danans or, or one of the ultimate divisions of them or Argives or Akahians or... or the way they split themselves up after they settled in, in the Peloponnesus and in Greece, they Boeotians, that there were a, a hundred different identities of sub-tribes, but they stayed with their own. And a Dorian would not intermarry with Ionians and vice versa. Even, and, and I pointed this out many times, 
Herodotus, who was a Dorian, considered Cyrus, who was half Mede and half Persian, to be a bastard, even though the Persians and the Medes were both absolutely white. So they stayed with their own people. So Paul is talking culturally here of Hellenes and not ethnically. And, and, and that's because Hellene was not an ethnicity. It represented a, a culture and language, religious beliefs and things like that. That brings us to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And, and this isn't the only place, and I'm not going to list every place where this word Hellene is translated as Gentile here instead of Greek. I could name them. It, it's Romans chapter 3, verse 9. In, in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul asks, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. And this is the King James Version. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now, now perhaps this is, perhaps this does merit this discussion, right? That the word Gentiles there is Greek. It's Hellene. Paul is not saying that people of nations other than Israel are under sin. In the Old Testament, only the children of Israel were given the law. And sin is transgression of the law. So in order for sin to be imputed, because Paul also said in Romans chapter 5 that where there is no sin, sin is not imputed. So sin can only be imputed to the children of Israel because it was only the children of Israel who had the law. So Paul is explaining, for we had before proved both Jews and Greeks that they are all under the sin. Well, Paul had told, where did he before prove that? This is his first epistle to the Romans. So where did he prove that before? Only in Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 2, where Paul said that the Romans had the truth of God and turned it into a lie, where he held them accountable for their sodomy and, and other sins, and in Romans chapter 2, where he also professed that the Romans had the word and the, or the laws of God written on their hearts, which was a promise made to all Israelites. So that's the only way Paul could actually say for we have before proved. Unless he's referring to older epistles, because the epistles to the Corinthians are older. And here he is speaking of Greeks, not Gentiles. In Romans 3.9, that word for Gentiles is Hellene. It has nothing to do with people of other nations other than the nations, the various tribes of the Greeks, the Greco-Roman world at that time. The culture was, for the most part, Greek. 
and the language, the common language of the people. Greek was spoken in the streets of Rome as the common language. So Paul also used that word Hellenes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and we'll probably discuss this chapter a little later this evening, or maybe next week, depending on whether or not we get there. But in the King James Version, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And that word is not ethnos, it's not nations or Gentiles. That word is Hellene, it's Greeks. So why is the King James Version perpetuating this lie? Why did they take a term that purposely means Greeks and, and translate it in a way that you might think means non-Jews? And we see the same thing again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Now that would make you think that a Zulu witch doctor could be baptized into the body of Christ. Because it just means non-Jews. But that's a lie. There is no J Zulu witch doctor which was ever a Greek. And that word Gentiles is Hellene. It means Greeks. Now, now, the other passage where the word for Greek is translated as Gentile, and of course it's wrong, it's wrong every time, is in John chapter 7, verse 35. And, and I didn't discuss this when we discussed the mistranslations in John. Perhaps I should have, perhaps I just overlooked it, but in John 7.35, Christ had said to, the, to, to his enemies, to those who opposed him in Jerusalem, he said, you shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And we read in verse 35, then the Judeans, I won't say Jews because that's not right, then the Judeans said among themselves, where will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? Well, that should have said the dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. So they created a huge lie, and the lie helps them promote their universalist concept of Scripture that absolutely any biped on a planet is a Gentile, so any biped on a planet can be a Christian, but that's not what Paul is saying. He's comparing Judeans and Greeks in all of these passages. Do you have anything to respond? Is there anything yeah, you'd yeah. like to add? That shows that even in Judea, they understood that there were Israelites amongst the Greeks, right? That they might not have fully understood the Romans and, and the really ancient migrations, but at least over the past cent few centuries at their time, they understood many Israelites were amongst the Greeks, right? Well, well right. If, if you consider um, John seven thirty five carefully, it didn't say, will he go under the dispersed among the Greeks 
and teach the dispersed among the Greeks, referring to Judeans, it says, will he go to the dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So that's it precisely. They must have understood that they were dispersed Israelites among the Greeks, even if they didn't perfectly understand the history. But the history could not have been concealed to them. Oh, okay, Flavius Josephus, he records, and it's also recorded independently in the first book of Maccabees, this letter from the Spartan king who professed to be of the seed of Abraham and brethren to the people of Judah in Jerusalem about 170 to 160 BC, somewhere in there, that letter was written. So if Josephus had access to that information, then these high priests in the temple, I'm sure they also had access to that information, that they also knew that. But they didn't like it. They were trying to suppress it by the time of Christ. They hated Paul for bringing the gospel of Christ to nations other than the Judeans. And they hated him for teaching it among the Judeans. So just like Christ said about them, you, pre you bar the doors to the kingdom of heaven. You yourselves don't enter in and you prevent those who are entering in from entering. That exactly <laughs> describes what would happen later when Paul tried to spread the gospel to those who should enter into the kingdom of heaven and they tried to prevent it, even though they themselves wouldn't go in they wouldn't accept Christ. They tried to prevent anybody from going in. So Christ exactly predicted what was going to happen with the spread of the gospel. And, and what happened there, um, in, in the experience of Paul. There are in a nation, in a, in a nature, they just hate Christianity. It's, it's just natural hatred. They, they, they want a pagan world with, with just, um, you, you know, a, a, a society just based around money and, you know, moving goods and trade. But they just because the, the, when Christianity spread, they're always naturally going to be against it. But because in a pagan world, anything goes open sex, free sex, sodomy, and anything goes, there are no moral barriers to any of those things that that is the devil's playground. That's the world we live in. Now we live in a pagan world now. I mean, most white folk might still claim to be Christian, but they accept all this paganism and, and they participate in it to one degree or another. They, go to, they watch porn, that they go to these sports festivals, it's the bread and circuses of the ancient Romans, that they, they, um, they support this smut that you see in Hollywood and entertainment and cable TV that they financially support it by subscribing to it. So they're responsible for it. Romans chapter one, that they all engage in it and, and support it. So they're all basically pagans. The next stop in, in our list and, and it's a brief list, but Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And, and this too is very significant because 
modern churches do not take that word father literally. Even though every time it's used, the scripture does take it literally. Christ, while the term earthly father of your natural father, it is a natural term. And, and we should call our earthly father, our father, just as Paul of Tarsus had said in his epistle to the Hebrews, that our earthly fathers chastise us or punish us when we do wrong. How should we interpret that term father in relation to the promises when in Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about the seed of Abraham and repeating the promise that Abraham's seed or offspring, descendants, would become many nations. And that promise, Paul is already describing it as having been fulfilled in his time. And Paul knew who those nations were, and he brought the gospel to those nations explicitly. And, and that's evident in many places. For, for instance, in his epistle to the Colossians, where, where in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he said that speaking of the kingdom of heaven and the body of Christ, there is neither Greek and, and the King James actually translated it correctly there. They had to because of the rest of the context. They couldn't translate it as Gentile because of the rest of the context. Where there is neither Greek nor Judean, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian. And, and that term barbarian was used very specifically among the ancient Greeks to describe the other white tribes who did not speak Greek. That's exactly what it was used to describe. Scythian, bond nor free. If anybody of any other race other than the white race were invited to the table of the children, <clears throat> that the, were invited to the body of Christ, why would Paul not one time mention an Egyptian or an Arabian in, in one of those contexts, why wouldn't he one time? I mean, the Greeks knew about all these non-white races in diverse places in the South, in Africa, and in the East, or at least races that used to be white that were not white any longer, such as the Arabs or, or the Egyptians. Why wouldn't Paul mention them at least one time? He doesn't. In Romans chapter 4, he's describing how the promises would be certain to the actual offspring of Abraham according to those promises. That's the entire point in Romans chapter 4. And he starts off in verse 1 by saying, What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, not father, forefather, that's a much more precise term than father. Our forefather has found as pertaining to the flesh. And that's a paraphrase of the King James Version, because the King James Version only has Abraham, our father. And if you understand the manuscripts upon which the King James Version was based, 
There was a collection of not even a dozen manuscripts that was built by Erasmus, the Dutch humanist scholar. And added to those a couple of hundred years later were about another dozen and a half. I think he had a total of maybe 26 manuscripts were collected by another scholar who was later in history, so he had access to more data, named Stephanus or Robert Estienne, right? And and his his taken name, all these um, medieval scholars took Latin-sounding names and wrote under those Latin-sounding names. So he wrote under the name Stephanus, even though his name was Robert Estienne. So... so he had maybe 26 manuscripts. None of those manuscripts dated before the 9th century AD, except for one codex that Erasmus did not have access to, but Stephanus did, and that was the Codex Beze. Now, the Codex Beze is the only one of the pre 19th pre-9th century manuscripts, which has a father here rather than forefather. All of the other, now today we have access to a whole range of ancient manuscripts or portions of ancient manuscripts that the King James translators did not have access to. So not all of their mistakes were purposeful, right? The only manuscripts they had access to when they made their translation in 1611 had father here. So they didn't do this on purpose. All of the majority text manuscripts, which date after the 9th century, have father in Romans 4.1. But today we have access to dozens and dozens of manuscripts that are far older than the ninth century. Now, it wasn't that these manuscripts did not exist in the 1600s. It's just that the Western Europeans did not have access to the lands and, and the archaeological, the potential archaeological discoveries, with, which were locked up in, in the Arab Muslim East, or in the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, or Greek Orthodox churches. The, the reformers didn't have access to most of that material. Being a heretic, you would never be given access to that material. So they did the best they could in, in the Luther Bible and, and all of the reformer Bibles. They did the best they could with the manuscripts they had, but they also made some purposeful errors like translating Helene into Gentile, which is terrible. It, it's, it, it creates a lie. It created a bunch of lies. So all of these older manuscripts have forefather instead of father, except the Codex Beze. And there's a whole plethora of witnesses that have forefather. So if the, the preponderance of evidence is that the original reading was forefather, we must accept that. Paul, using the word forefather, 
was telling the Romans that Abraham was indeed their natural forefather. He had already explained to them several times that things befell them which only pertain to the children of Israel. For example, they had the truth of God changed into a lie, as I've already mentioned, and they had the laws of God written on their hearts. So as Paul proceeds with this chapter of Romans, chapter 4, and I won't dwell on it because we've already discussed it, we find that the Romans were among those many nations which had come of Abraham's seed through Jacob, and for that reason, as Paul states in the rest of that chapter, to them the promises were assured. That's why he's writing them. <coughs> Did the um, reformers only have access to the Latin manuscripts, or, or did they have any access to the older Greek ones? Well, well they did have that? access to Latin manuscripts, yes. I, I didn't want to elaborate on that. It's not really that important, because the Latin manuscripts aren't that old. The Latin manu manuscripts aren't that old. I didn't... Um, I don't know if I ever bothered to check on the Latin reading here in the Vulgate. But they were basically. Oh, but I mean, using... they couldn't. They couldn't go back to the Greek, right? That they didn't have access to. The no, they really did old have Greek access one. to the Greek. I I just explained that they had those Greek manuscripts of Robert S. D. N. and and of Erasmus, and that is, with the Codex Beze, that is what the King James version is based on. It usually follows the majority text, but which is the text of of the Byzantines, and it was the text. It was majority text manuscripts that Erasmus and SDN had collected for their editions of Greek New Testaments. The, the Latin does not say forefather, the Vulgate. It just says father. But that's Jerome's Vulgate, if indeed it's Jerome's Vulgate. Now, it would be a whole separate study. There were old Latin manuscripts, but it would be a whole separate study to see what they have. But the Vulgate is what the King James translators would have had access to. They would not have had access, it's very unlikely, they would have had any access to old Latin manuscripts. But they would have had access to the Vulgate. And I think it was um, Tyndale. There was one reformer early on that, that made a New Testament translated from the Latin Vulgate. It, is it Tyndale? Tyndale? It, it might be Tyndale. Is is that the... Or is it Wycliffe? Wycliffe. I'm sorry. I always get them mixed up, right? I think I got them mixed up in a discussion with you a week or two ago. Wycliffe. He made the... Um... And they killed him, didn't they? Yes. He didn't translate the entire Bible... I believe that his followers had finished his work, but he made the first modern, and, and modern is a stretch here, right? Because it's the, the 14th century. But he made the first modern English translation of scripture. And he only had influence. England being Roman Catholic at the time, he, he only had access to the Vulgate, I believe. I don't think he would have had access to any of the Greek texts that the Reformers had, had managed to, to collect for themselves later on. 
sorry that's what i meant when i said did they have access to greek i meant the uh, the before the king james and that the, the really early people sorry well it would have been difficult for a reformer because the reformer was alienated to the roman catholic church <clears throat> and and erasmus it, erasmus was a monk right he he was a, a learned man he was a reformer he just didn't join the reformation to oppose the pope right he, he didn't join luther or, or any of the reformers to oppose the pope i'm not even i, I don't even know if he was really contemporary of luther it, it was very close i should check that out erasmus yes he was a contemporary of luther he died in 1536 luther came to um luther came into his into the reformation when he nailed those 95 theses to the church at wittenberg i think that was 1518 give or take a year it might have been 1519 or 1517 so yes erasmus was around and I do believe that they corresponded and contacted one another and knew one another, Luther and Erasmus. But Erasmus did not join the Reformation against the church, even though he was an internal church reformer. And that wasn't all for the good because Erasmus was also a humanist. And, and he fostered schools of humanism who had, had um, later, directly or indirectly, undermined Christian morals in Europe, which is what many of the humanists were doing at Luther's time. So the humanists were all in favor of the Reformation, most of them, because they wanted to remove the temporal power of the Pope so that they could practice their hedonism, because a lot of the humanists were hedonists. They were immoral. I discussed that at great length in, in a series of podcasts I, I did on um, Martin Luther and life and death back about four years ago, what, which I had actually um, halted, even though it was not complete, I had halted it in favor of doing the Jews in medieval Europe and the protocols of Satan. But it was several groups that were interested in the Reformation. And, and the victory of the reformers. But Erasmus was a humanist that, that wanted to stay in the Catholic Church. So he didn't join it. That being said, do we have anything else before we move on to Romans chapter 8? Well, well it's just fascinating that it's not so black and white that, you know, the Catholic Church obviously had got worse and worse, but... Uh, with the freedom, also that there came bad things, right? That the Jews were now a lot more free, and and the humanists as well. Well, absolutely, and and if you look at the history of the Reformation, and I covered this in great detail in two podcast series I did, both in Lutheran Life and Death and in the Jews in Medieval Europe. Before Martin Luther had had um come along. To, to give a Christian opposition, a Christian-based opposition to the evils of the Roman Catholic Church. There was Johann Reuschlin, who was a German scholar, and he 
was opposed by the Dominican monks. The Dominican monks wanted to eradicate the Talmud, the Kabbalah, and all of the Jewish writings from Europe. Now, we have to understand that at this time, the Kabbalah was being spread by the Jews and their sycophants or their sympathizers to all of the academics in Europe, and the Kabbalah was being promoted as a book of magic, but it was being done in the guise of science, that the Kabbalah was the, the, the answer to their quest of science. All these alchemists in Europe, the whole um, trade or, or discipline, I don't know what you want to call it, it's really sorcery right, of alchemy was based on the Kabbalah. John D and I did a whole podcast on this, on John D introducing the Kabbalah into England in the time of Queen Elizabeth I. So this Kabbalah was spreading, and the Dominican monks were the foremost of the, the traditional Christians in Germany who wanted it stopped. But Johann Reuschlin was a, 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 he was brilliant in his own way, but he was promoting the Kabbalah and, and the Talmud, and he was the foremost voice that was used as a front man for Jewry to get the Pope to accept these things. So this was all heard before Pope Leo X, who was actually... Giovanni de Medici and Pope Leo X never really made a decision. So it was all tabled and Reuschlin was never punished for promoting the Kabbalah, but he was seen by, by the, by most um, European German scholars as having lost the debate, right? That the church would not approve of the Talmud or the Kabbalah. But it wasn't burning them either because Leo X didn't carry through with, with a, a final ultimatum in his decision. He, he never really executed the, the fact that the Kabbalah had to go. So the Kabbalah didn't go, it stayed. And, and these alchemists, who were supposedly all scholars, had continued to use it. And when science, when what we think is modern science developed and the scientific academies were founded in France and in England, the Kabbalah was a huge influence among all of these so-called scientists. So our modern science, it is still influenced by Kabbalah under this day. Even though better men had become scientists who, who really did practice what we might think is true scientific method, it, it's still a large part of our science. It is imbued with Kabbalistic thinking today. And especially all the theoretical bullshit, like the Big Bang and, and um, theoretical physics and all of that stuff. Evolution. That's a digression, right? 
that's a long one. So I apologize, but no, you asked, so I had to say it, right? So in in the in the Reformation, you had these various groups with really no common interests. You had the humanists who wanted to be pagans. You had the the um the the men like Luther who were trying to defend the body of Christ from exploitation by the Pope of Rome because the Christians of Germany were actually being exploited by the popes in order to make money, and it was very clear. And then you had the Jews, and then you had the alchemists and, and, and the sympathizers of the Jews, and they were all joining this Reformation, but it was an unholy alliance. It was a completely unholy alliance. So Luther, in 1518, he was in bed with Jews that they were cranking up their printer, printing presses and pumping out his pamphlets and, and his diatribes against the Pope. But they were only doing it because they wanted to eradicate the power of the Pope. Where Luther thought that he might be able to convert Jews to Christianity without the Pope. He really believed that. By 1543, he finally realized that the Jews were nothing but treacherous scum, and he wanted to drown them all in a river. And he wrote on the Jews and their lies. So he, it took Luther 25 years of, of being supported by and working with Jews to realize Jewish treachery, but it was too late. Because by the time he wrote on the Jews and their lies in 1543, and he died in 1546, his church already took off in a direction that was friendly to the Jews and was embarrassed that he wrote on the Jews and their lies. It was too late. So Protestantism is still in bed with Jews today. And the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy, which are opposed to Jews, they look traditional and they look appealing to people that, that, that understand the treachery of the Jews. That's the quandary we have ourselves in because early Christians simply didn't believe the gospel and, and the epistles of the apostles or didn't have a basis to understand them. Now, perhaps we could move on to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> Romans 8.15, well, we had this word adoption. Ah, this is like exasperating, right? And Paul says in verse 15, and this is the King James translation. This time I'll get it right. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, which is really a word that means father, Abba, father. And concerning this phrase, spirit of adoption, and, and the, the traditional Christians, denominational Christians, Roman Catholics, Protestants, they think that this means that anybody could become a member of the body of Christ and 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 Israel, which they that they claim that the church is Israel when that's not really true. The truth is that the children of Israel are the church. There's a huge difference there, but they claim any believer can be an Israelite based on passages such as this one, where we see this word adoption. 
So concerning this phrase, spirit of adoption, this word adoption is a Greek word, huiothesia. And the word huiothesia does not by itself ever mean adoption in Greek writings. The word means a placement or a position of a son. There were other words in Greek literature which were consistently used to describe the actual act of adoption. And those words are ispoiesis, and ispoiesis is a noun. It describes a making into, to take something and make it into something. Ispoieo, which is a verb, and ispoietos, which is an adjective, all describe the same act, a making into. So while a son can be placed for adoption, where huiothesia, this word, may be used to describe the act of placing, it does not describe the actual adoption. If I place my son up for adoption, that is the huiothesia. I placed a son for a particular purpose. If you come along and adopt my son as yours and give him your name, that is an ispoiesis, which means to make someone who was placed for adoption into a son by carrying through the act of adoption you make him into your son. That's ispoiesis. That's not huiothesia. Huiothesia is the placing of a son. And the lost sheep of the house of Israel, for whom Christ had come, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with whom the New Testament had been made, had been promised, those people were already sons or daughters. And that is found throughout the promises of reconciliation to those same sons and daughters in the words of the prophets. So in that manner, the same word, huiothesia, can also be used to describe other things, such as the placing of a son, someone who's already a son, into a household position or as an heir. And that happens to correctly describe the Christian promise as it is outlined in the Old Testament. The sons and daughters of Yahweh were being put off, but in the place where it was said to them that ye are not my people, to them it will be said, that ye are the sons of the living God. They weren't being made sons. They were being recognized as sons as long as they turned to Christ. That is what this word adoption means, this word huiothesia. It does not mean adoption in the sense that you're taking someone who is not a son or a daughter and making him into a son or a daughter. That's ispoiesis. In Greek, I have examples in, in some of my papers, I didn't pull them for this particular presentation, where Diodorus Siculus speaks of adoption and uses these two terms in the same way that I'm describing them here. 
and the adoption is described by eispoiesis, to make someone who is not a son into a son. To make into is the meaning of that word. Therefore, and especially since there is no other indications in the text that the idea of adoption is ever the context, Cleophesius should be rendered here in this passage as the spirit of the position of sons or of a son. In other words, Romans 8.15 should be read to say, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, as the Israelites were in bondage under the old covenant, but ye have received the spirit of the position of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. These were people that were sons of God and alienated from God, but now they're being reconciled to God, so they are recovering their position as sons of God. That's what Paul is explaining. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, where the phrase, where we see the phrase waiting for the adoption in the King James Version, that would better be rendered awaiting the placement of sons. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, the phrase hon he huiothesia should be whose is the position of sons. It, it should not be, as the King James has it, whose is the adoption, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. But even with that, and after everything I after everything else I've said here, if you insist on translating huiothesia as adoption, if you insist that that's how it must be translated. In that passage, in Romans chapter 9, Paul informs us that the adoption and other things pertaining to Israel are only for the children of Israel who are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. So if Paul says, for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And this is the King James Version. Who are Israelites? So Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh are the people he's praying for that he would rather be accursed than have any of them be accursed, than have any of them be separated. Who are Israelites? because only his kinsmen according to the flesh are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, in other words, the natural descendants of the ancient patriarchs of Israel, for them alone, because it's not for anybody else, Paul is explicitly stating that these things are for them, for his kinsmen according to the flesh, not for Zulu Shibuns and, and Chinamen and subcontinent Indians and, and Native American squat monsters. These things are for his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And the King James Version added the word pertaineth because they understood what Paul was saying. They did understand that, even if they mistranslate that word adoption 
who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. As he had explained in Romans chapter 4, just five chapters earlier, that the promise is certain to all of the offspring or seed of Abraham, meaning the children of Israel. So Paul's language is very explicit that it's only for certain people. And even if you want to go to Romans 8.15, as we've cited here, and think that he's talking about adoption, in Romans chapter 9, he explains that this adoption is only for the Israelites, for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Later, in the same chapter, Romans chapter 9, Paul insisted that the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And upon saying that, he described the promise made to Sarah, and then the promise made to Rebekah concerning their children, meaning Isaac and Jacob. So believers are not the seed of the promise, but only the descendants of those women ultimately through Jacob Israel, because the Edomites also descended from Rebekah, but the, the Israelites, as Paul has, had explained, as Paul explained in that same chapter a little later on, the Israelites are the vessels of mercy, and the Edomites, who are also from the promise made to Rebekah, they are vessels of destruction. So Paul's language even where he uses phrases like adoption, is very explicit and very specific. And it's only for the same ancient children of Israel. It's not for everybody. And they also um, tie this verse with the uh, grafting of the wild olive tree into the uh, cultivated olive tree, right? That They love that one as well, as though... If you uh, just believe in Christ, then you'll get grafted into the tree of Israel, what, which is, which is also uh, nonsense, right? Because nonsense. the Romans didn't have the law, so they were wild. And the Israelites who went with Moses did have the law, so they were cultivated. That, that's what he's saying, right? That is what he's saying. The, the Romans had, had gone off. <clears throat> Their ancestors had actually departed from Egypt. Even though they had the truth of God when they departed from Egypt, they actually did not ever have the law at Mount Sinai. Now, they did receive shades of it in other ways, because when the Romans had sought a law code, right, when they sought to establish laws in Rome at, as, a, um, as a republic, right, because Rome had always been under kings. And a king makes his own laws. but and, and Livy explains this. Livy, the Roman historian, explains this. When Rome had sought to establish a, an official law code or code of law, they sent to the Greeks. And they got their laws from Solon. And they based their law upon the laws of Solon, who was a famous Greek lawgiver. The Athenians, in turn, were very much influenced by the Hebrews, and, and Greek writers had mentioned Moses as one of the famous lawgivers of the ancient world. They were familiar with those biblical laws. So Paul, because Rome had established a society based on a sense of law rather than the law of the jungle, 
right? Paul commended them for having the laws of God written in their hearts, which I believe happens through hearing the law and, and cultural acclamation once somebody accepts it. That's my, my theory on that, on, on having the law written in your hearts, that that's how it happens. So I don't think it's magic, right? We are culturally acclimated as Christians. So we know that you really shouldn't steal. We know that you really shouldn't rape a woman. We know that you really shouldn't commit murder, that those things are, are contrary to our very existence, that we should never do them, that they, they are sins, they're horrible crimes. Well, in a non-Christian culture, which has not been acclimated by those laws, those things would be that they would have to be accepted because the only law left is the law of the jungle, the law of might makes right. We have civilized these other races. They did not have any sense of, of, of law before they were civilized. People were only exploited and, and, and used as merchandise by whoever was stronger. There were other acclamations to law in the ancient world, in the pre-Christian period, in the ancient period, but they still came out of the same culture, going back to ancient Mesopotamia and, and maybe 3000 BC. We're off on another digression. I don't know if you have anything else or anything I missed. Sometimes the digressions, I, I go so far that I miss the original point that you wanted, that you were asking about or wanted to explain. No, no, that's it. Fine. We, we could go on to the next one, if you like. Absolutely. Well, let's talk one a little bit more about these olive branches, right? Because I, I really didn't um, include them in this discussion. But if you read chapter 9, Paul is talking about Israel. He's praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh. The subject never changes just because the chapter number changes. And at the end of chapter 9, he, he's calling, he, he's appealing to Hosea, to a prophecy in Hosea, right? Where, where Hosea said, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved, but if you read Hosea, those words pertain to the children of Israel, that it shall come to pass. And Paul's quoting Hosea, Hosea chapters 1 and 2, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, who was it said to? It was said to the ancient children of Israelites. You are not my people. There in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, which was ancient Palestine when they were being sent off into captivity. There shall they be called the children of the living God. So who are in the New Testament, which Paul is quoting Hosea at the end of Romans chapter nine, who are the children of the living God? The children of Israel that were put off from that God many centuries before. And that's what Paul is saying here. He has to be speaking about people that he knew descended from the ancient Israelites. And he made that same profession in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 2, and in Romans chapter 4 in different ways. How many witnesses do we need 
that Christian identity is true. This is the fourth time now that we're in Romans chapter 9. And then in Romans chapter 10, now he defined Israel as his kinsmen according to the flesh. In Romans chapter 10, brethren. So he's calling these Romans brethren. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And then he goes on to discuss how the the scripture promises that all Israel will be saved. He's not talking about Jews. He's talking about those who are really Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's not talking about those Edomite vessels of destruction. And as we proceed through Romans chapter 11 and all of Paul's little digressions, it's still the subject has not changed. The subject, he goes on to describe in Romans 11 how some of them are going to be punished and going to stumble, but the subject has not changed where it says in, in Romans 11, 11, that through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. No, through their fall, salvation has come to the nations. To what nations? To those nations which Paul had described in Romans chapter 4, were the nations that descended from the seed of Abraham in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his seed would become many nations. Paul's not talking about any other nations but the nations of scattered Israel. Then we get to Romans chapter 12. Or, I'm sorry, this is actually Romans chapter 11. We get on to Romans chapter 11, and he says, If thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted into a good olive tree, but that is not a good olive tree. The word which says good should actually be translated as cultivated olive tree. And and that's it it's a Cali Alahios, right? An olive tree is an Alahios, and a wild olive tree is an Agra Alahios, and a cultivated olive tree is a Cali Alahios. So so these words are they they are specific agricultural terms to the ancient Greeks right? Paul's just not making this up, but they are all olive trees. And and some are wild because they, they didn't take the law. They didn't have the experience of Sinai and the 40 years in the desert and the conquering of Canaan. And that would include the Romans. And others were cultivated by that. And that would include the Dorian Greeks who didn't leave Palestine until the 12th century BC. So they were at Sinai. They were with Moses in the, in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. So when Paul talks to the Dorian Greeks, he doesn't say anything about um, wild olive trees and culti cultivated olive trees and, and branches implanted. He doesn't talk to them like that. 
he tells the Corinthians, all our fathers were under the sea and under the cloud and were baptized in the sea and the cloud by Moses. And that's a reference to their receiving the law at Sinai. So they did have the law. They were never a wild olive tree. They had the cultural acclamation of several hundred years under the laws of God in, in ancient Israel. The Galatians, when Paul talks to the Galatians, he doesn't talk to them about wild olives. He doesn't talk to them about being grafted in. He only said that to the Romans, because the Romans, among all the descendants of Israel, had their own specific history because they weren't in Sinai when the law was given. He tells the Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And that Christ came to redeem them who were under the law. Now, that would include the Romans indirectly because they never had the law. But they're still including those promises to Jacob because they descended from Jacob. Where the Galatians were from the Assyrian captivity 500 years after the Dorians went to Greece. 900 years after <laughs> The Trojans departed from Egypt. We have the Galatians were of the Assyrian captivity. The law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. They had that experience of cultural acclamation for 700 years under the law until the Assyrian captivity. And that's that the Galatians descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. So all these people that Paul is writing to have slightly different experiences, and Paul is addressing them in the light of their own history. But he could have never went to a Mandingo and said that the law was your schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. The Mandingo would have cut him up in pieces and ate him for dinner. I don't know if you have anything to say. <laughs> no, I think that covers everything on on the you know the the olive trees. Uh, and th there's nothing about it being an olive, right? Where compared to say the Assyrians, who are a, a cedar tree, right? It, it's just the way uh, Paul chose to portray it, right? Yes, I believe so. I, I mean. The, the children of Israel are described throughout the prophets as several different types of trees, just the way that the prophet wanted to express himself, the way God wanted to express himself through the prophet to make a particular analogy, to, to maybe perhaps use a particular feature of a particular tree in, in part of an allegory. So... It, it's that there's really nothing um, significant about Paul having chosen olive trees here, but he used the olive tree evidently as a specific example because of its use in agriculture. That you had these, that this term agroalahion, which any Greek of his time would have recognized as a wild olive tree. And Kalialahion, which any Greek of his time would have recognized as an olive tree that's not wild, that, that's been 
planted from the seed of other olive trees for a particular purpose so that it could be cultivated and pruned and everything that was necessary to cultivate a tree to get the the, the maximum produce from that tree. That there would be, I imagine, a huge difference between grapes found in the wild and grapes found in the vineyard where the grapes were always dressed. Meaning that the vines were pruned and, and basically there's an art of regulating it so that you would only so that you would get the maximum amount of the best fruit from each vine. So you would probably discard some of the fruit by pruning it. And Christ uses that analogy of, of the children of Israel in, in the gospel. So it, there's no particular significance to this olive tree analogy, except that Paul wanted to use those specific terms to describe the children of Israel, which proves that he was speaking about people that were all Israelites originally. The next passage we should probably discuss is Romans chapter 15, and I'm going to quote the King James Version. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will, cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. That's verse 9, and now I'll read Romans 15, 10. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. Now that sounds like a collection of Jews and niggers, right? Or it could be. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and loud him, all ye people. And I'm sure that denominational Christians would read that, and it thinks it, it, it refers to Jews and, and to all the people of the world that they should all rejoice in Jesus because everybody's saved. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. But when the, um, and, and I've said this in the past, when a writer in the New Testament cites something or quotes something from the Old Testament, he's not citing it merely because it sounds cool. It sounds good. Oh, wow, let me use that line. I could use that line and that'll really get him. No, he's not an evangelical TV pastor. The apostles weren't evangelical TV pastors. They didn't say stuff just because it sounded good, because they thought that that would win the people over and they'd rake in the cash or whatever. That's not why they said that. If Paul is citing these passages from the Old Testament, he is not taking them out of context. And it would serve us well to go back to the Old Testament every time we see the Old Testament cited in Scripture. We must go back to the Old Testament and read the Scripture to see the context that it was in, the original context. Because the apostles, certainly, they certainly had that original context in mind when they cited those Old Testament passages. So in verse 9 of Romans chapter 15 here, where it says, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, 
For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing under thy name. In verse 9, there is a paraphrase of 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 50, and Psalm 1849. In the places where the King James Version has Gentiles here, the word is heathen in the King James Version in those corresponding Old Testament verses. In verses 10 and 11 here, they are both quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 10 quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And verse 11 quotes from Psalm chapter Psalm 117, verse 1. In those places, in the King James Version, where it reads nations, the King James Version has Gentiles here in Romans. So they apparently could not translate the words which mean nations, whether they were Hebrew or Greek, with any consistency whatsoever. As we've explained in the past, <clears throat> the words Gentile, which is not even an English word, heathen and nation in the New Testament, in most cases, are used to represent the Greek word ethnos, which is primarily a nation in the sense of ethnicity. And here and elsewhere, it is evident that by translating ethnos into these various words indiscriminately, it is rather easy to create false doctrines and to pervert the interpretation of the promises to Abraham and the other patriarchs. While there are a couple of places where we could legitimately translate the word ethnos as heathen, it must be done with great reservation. It's only in particular contexts. And also with the knowledge that the word does not ever bear the meaning non-Adamite by itself, or even non-Israelite by itself. And that it can also properly and literally be rendered people in those places, especially as we described last week, especially where it's speaking about a local crowd of people in of various nations gathered into one place, like the ancient synagogues where you had both Judeans and Greeks in the audience. You couldn't refer to them in Greek as a laos because a laos is a body of people of the same nation. So you would have to refer to them as ethne, which is the plural. Ta ethne is the plural. And that indicated that they were people of different origins or different, in, in the Greek view, of different nations who were gathered together in one place. That, that's difficult to wrap our head around. We have to actually plant ourselves in ancient Greece and try to think like Greeks to understand that. But that's the art of translation. That's part of the art of translation. And today, everywhere is a mix of people, right? Yeah, Thanks right. To right. Today, we have ta ethne all over the place. Everywhere we look, there's very few um, towns and villages anymore that constitute a laos, meaning a body of people who are all of the same origin. Right. The Jews have really put the whole world in a blender. But um, <sighs> Bill, where, where they were... <laughs> Uh, translating Gentiles and nations in the New Testament and the Old Testament verses differently. Do you think that shows that the translators didn't necessarily uh, perhaps know the Bible that well or weren't going back and forth? They were essentially just doing a job 
well, know, well, a team right. of scribes just translating the King James. Right. I, I think that's absolutely correct. They were just doing their job and, and making the best possible out of each verse to fit their own doctrine. A lot of these verses in the King James Version, and, and we're not going to talk about it, I don't think, in, in this series at all, because it really doesn't have anything to do with proving the Israelites were white. But I have a separate paper at Christagenia, Misconceptions of Paul and the Church, where I actually go through a lot of the passages that the King James translators had rendered in certain ways in order to uphold the structure of the Anglican Church as it was at their time and to uphold its authority. For, for instance, the word minister is from the, the, um, a particular Greek word meaning servant, but sometimes it's translated as servant, and sometimes it's translated as minister. Sometimes it's translated as deacon, as if a deacon and a minister were two different things. But it's all the same Greek word, diakonos. And diakonos is basically a servant. So they translate it as minister when they want to make you believe that the, the subject is in a position of authority. And then they translate it as deacon if they want you to believe that the subject is in a position of lesser authority, because that's the way the Anglican church was structured. And then when the context absolutely demands it, they translate it as servant. And they're making three different, um, three different phenomenon from a single word. Now, that's dishonest. That's not honest. That's not an honest translation. Even if the Latin term that minister comes from, because minister is actually a Latin term that was brought into English for that purpose. It's a Latin church word. It really does mean to serve. But bringing that Latin church word into English and using it in that particular way We've lost the understanding in popular culture that to minister means to serve. And a minister is seen as a person of authority in the assembly. And that's connected to another term that actually means, and it's chirotonio. Chirotonio means to extend the hand, right? And the Greeks use that term the way we would say vote right? If you read the book of Acts, Paul had his apostles go to each assembly, and they chose their servants, their ministers, the people of the assembly, by voting one of their elders into the position. But in the King James Version, that word chirotonio isn't to vote or to elect, it's ordained. And you get the impression that perhaps this minister had to be ordained by the apostles, but that's not what was going on. The apostles were having the assembly. The apostles didn't know the elders. They couldn't come into a strange town and, and, 
and and gather up 40 or 50 Christian converts and form an assembly and, and figure out who the elders were. They didn't know them. The people knew them. And when the apostles leave town, those ministers have to be responsible to the body of Christians. It's not the other way around. You're not responsible to your minister. Your minister is responsible to you. If, if he's teaching and what he's teaching, these this body of Christians, that they understand that this is contrary to Scripture, they could get rid of him. Beat it, pal. You're doing the wrong thing. We're replacing you. So, so this is a, a, a view of how a Christian assembly should work. The true Christian view is absolutely contrary to the interests of an established church organization, like the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. So they take this word that means to vote or to elect, kairotonio, to extend the hand, and they translate it to ordain, giving you the impression that some outside authority should ordain your minister. And that's not true. And, and this is why there were so many sects in, in the Reformation, in Protestantism. Because men knew how to read Greek, they learned how to read Greek, and they could tell that these words were being manipulated, and they split from it. That's why you have Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Anglicans, just in England. And sadly, they're all Calvinists. <laughs> so there's other heresies that crept in anyway. That's why we have so many sects. In Christian identity, we profess to believe the entire scripture and that the scripture is always the authority. That's the difference. That's how we are distinct from all these sects. That's another digression. I'm sorry. Getting back to Romans chapter 15, verses 9 to 11. If Paul cited four Old Testament passages in relation to glorifying God, it would serve us right to go back and look at these passages and see what God should be glorified for. See why we should glorify God. See how that relates to us. Because we cannot assume that Paul was citing these passages out of context. So I'm going to read even longer portions than what Paul had paraphrased. But we will use the term nation for the Hebrew term goy where the King James Version might have heathen or people. When I cite these four passages, 2 Samuel 22, and, and from Psalm 18, from Deuteronomy 32, and from Psalm 117, the four passages that Paul had cited here in these three verses of Romans, I'm going to use the term nation instead of heathen or Gentile either singular or plural. So from 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-eight, it is God that avenges me. These are the words of David. And brings down the people under me. And it brings me forth from mine enemies. Thou hast also lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. 
thou hast delivered me from the violent man. I should say from the nigger and the kike. I'm sorry. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Yahweh, among the nations, and I will sing praises unto thy name. David wasn't singing that he should give thanks to God among heathens, the people that he just rejoiced, having oppressed and, and ruled over. He's not thanking God, and, and he's not going to go out to those Canaanites and those Edomites and those Moabites that he had conquered and, and glorify God among them. He's going to give thanks unto Yahweh among the nations, and we'll see that that is also a reference to the children of Israel, the tribes of Israel. And I will sing praises unto thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his king, meaning David, and shows mercy to his anointed unto David, David being anointed as king, and to his seed forevermore. Now, to move on to Psalm 18, verse 48. He delivers me from mine enemies, and these, again, are the words of David. Yeah, thou liftest me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. This is really a repeat, and many of the Psalms were, of things that were recorded in Second Samuel or in First Kings or First Chronicles, where we read of, of the history of David, and a lot of them also became psalms that were also recorded in these historical books. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Yahweh, among the nations, and sing praises unto thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king, and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and to his seed forevermore. So it's it, it's those passages, the text of the passages is the same. It's those passages, one or the other, which Paul had paraphrased in Romans 15.9. Now, Romans 15.10 is a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I'll read from verse 42 so that we see the context of the citation. And this is Yahweh God speaking. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, and it says with, but with is added into the text. With does not belong in the text. It should say, rejoice, O ye nations, his people but they added the with. And we'll see the Septuagint translators also added the with when they translated the Hebrew into the Septuagint. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries. So it's certainly not talking about all the nations plus the people of Israel. The nations are the people of Israel. And that's the way it should be interpreted. That's Moses in the Song of Moses. And that's the way it should be interpreted in those same places where we see David use the same term. The tribes of Israel already being considered nations according to the promises of God. They were each nations in their own right. 
for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So the people are the same people the nations of Israel expected to rejoice. Psalm 117, which is the passage from which Paul, which Paul cited in Romans 15.11. Oh, praise Yahweh, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, speaking to the children of Israel. The law and the word of God only be being given to the children of Israel, for which David rejoiced. I think it's the 147th Psalm. I might be wrong. It's up there somewhere. For which David rejoiced. He's not talking about other nations and people here. Oh, praise Yahweh, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. Not towards aliens, but towards the children of Israel. And the truth of Yahweh endures forever. Praise ye Yahweh. All four of these passages, which Paul cited here in Romans 15, verses 9 to 11, are related to Yahweh's vengeance against the enemies of the children of Israel and his mercy and deliverance for them. This is the same purpose of the gospel which Luke had recorded twice in the opening chapters of his gospel, to save us from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> so where Paul cites these passages, you cannot imagine that he meant to remove them from that context and stick them into some other context. You can't imagine that. So now, reading Romans 15, 9-11, and translating ethnos as nation, it reflects that understanding. But, verse 8 is also important, so we will include that. It's very important. Because Paul isn't saying anything different than what we read back there in Luke chapter 1 just two weeks ago, I think, or last week, the week before, when we talked about mistranslations and misunderstandings in Luke. So I'll start from Romans 15, 8, but I'm going to translate ethnos properly as nation. Therefore I say, and this might be the Christian New Testament, I believe. Therefore I say, Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision, a servant of circumcision, in behalf of the truth of Yahweh, for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. So he didn't come for any other truth. He didn't come for all people. He came for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. And that the nations, those same children of Israel of Deuteronomy chapter 32, and that the nations, the children of Israel, were promised to become many nations. And that the nations might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. Well, back there in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and in Psalm chapter 18, David did that because the children of Israel, under him as king, conquered all of the surrounding people. 
We can't take it out of that context in Romans chapter 15. That is the context for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. You can't take this and apply it to non-Israelites. It can't be done. That would be stealing. And again, he saith, rejoice ye nations with his people. And Paul is actually, if you examine the Greek, taking the Septuagint translation word for word. But that with was not in the original Hebrew. So I would strike it. And again, praise the Lord, all ye nations, and allowed him, all ye people. And simply because Paul wrote ye nations with his people, that doesn't mean that he thought that those nations were any other people. Paul already explained that the nations of the promises are the seed of Abraham, that his seed would become many nations. The children of Israel being prophesied to become many nations, of which Paul had declared the fulfillment, those other nations which are addressed in each of these four scriptures which he had cited. For the confirmation of the promises to the fathers and the nations to whom Paul was apostle were of those same fathers, and the promises of the fathers in the announcement of the Gospel of Luke includes salvation from their enemies, which is the theme of the original context of every passage which Paul cited here in Romans chapter 15. So he means the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that Israel would be forever and, and that's why Christ come, right, essentially? Well, well absolutely, because, yeah, you know, I don't think that there are any promises in the Old Testament to Wakanda or, or Lakeisha <laughs> or Leroy or, or Stymie <laughs> or whatever um, eponymous Tyrone. name you want to put on a nigger. Yeah. There are no promises to Tyrone in the Old Testament. That there, there, there aren't any promises to um, Li Fu Yang either, or, or Confucius even. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's only one race of people. That's any matter of concern. A and with that, Romans fifteen eight. The promises to the fathers that Christ came to fulfill those promises. How could anybody interpret the rest of Paul where, where it says Gentiles and take that out of context and apply it to any other people? That's stealing. It's not what Paul wrote. He defined those nations in Romans chapter 4 as the seed of Abraham. Thus thy seed shall be. He never said that many other nations were going to become Abraham's seed. He only said and explicitly said that Abraham's seed or offspring were going to become many nations and that it was that manner in which God fulfilled the promises to Abraham. And Paul says that explicitly in Romans chapter 4 and the churches just ignore it. 
and they go to some other place in Paul's epistles and say, see, all the Gentiles. And they start preaching to niggers. Now the next passage is actually a separate topic, and it's Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And I don't think we're going to get past Romans today. So <laughs> we'll just have to start with 1 Corinthians next week. But I would like to get this in, in, in this presentation if you're ready to roll with it. Or if you yeah, have anything sure. Let's else finish to Romans. Say. I'm sorry. Romans 16, verse 20. That This is also important. The nature of Satan is extremely important. And to see what Satan is and, and how the scripture teaches us what Satan is. And Paul teaches us what Satan is. It's not some boogeyman in the sky that flies by and makes us do bad things. I understand that the first two chapters of Job are misunderstood to get people to believe that. But that's just Jewish manipulation as far as I'm concerned. Paul tells us very clearly what Satan is. So we should probably discuss Romans 16, 20. And in the King James Version, Paul is basically, this is his salutation. He's signing off the epistle. And he says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, when I did my um, 121 podcast series on the epistles of Paul, I established through the epistles themselves and the book of Acts when each of those epistles was written. And Romans was written in 57, I think it was, or 58 AD. Romans, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. Romans was the last epistle he wrote before he went to Jerusalem and he was arrested and imprisoned. And the next epistle that he wrote was Hebrews that survives, right? Surviving epistles was Hebrews. And the epistle to the Hebrews is basically Paul's defense of his Christian doctrine to the Judeans, his kinsmen according to the flesh, to try to explain Christianity to them, to the Hebrew Israelites in Judea, for which reason he called it his epistle to the Hebrews. So, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Knowing that Paul had written this in, I believe it was 57 AD. It may have been 58. I don't remember my chronology exactly. There's many pieces to it, right? Well, well anyway, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans 13 years later, 70 AD. That's when the God of peace bruised Satan under the feet of the Romans. Paul addressing his epistle to the Romans. Yahweh is the God of peace, and the children of Israel shall have peace when they are obedient to their God, but not until the time when Yahweh destroys his enemies, which we learn from Luke chapter 1 and elsewhere. 
where it speaks of the enemies of the ancient Israelites. The gospel says it, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, honor to Yahweh, or God, in the heights, and peace upon the earth among approved men. It doesn't say, and goodwill to men. That's another King James Version mistranslation, which I didn't discuss when we discussed Luke. Maybe I should have. But the Greek reads, peace upon the earth among approved men. Those whom Yahweh has chosen or approved, they shall have peace while the others await destruction. It's that simple. That's really is what it's saying, even though you would need a whole lot of other evidence to prove that. Romans 2.14. In the North American Standard Bible, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So that fully supports my translation and peace upon the earth among approved men. My translation is perhaps a little cruder, but it's more literal word for word, right? So you see the same meaning in the North American Standard Bible, peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. So here in Romans 16.20, Paul makes a prophecy that, as the King James Version has it, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And the language is reminiscent of Genesis 3.15 for a very good reason. Paul is not doing this randomly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul expressed the desire to have visited the Thessalonians. But he summarized some of the obstacles which prevented him from doing so. And there he says to them that you have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among the number of Christ Yahshua. Because these same things even you have suffered by your own tribesmen, likewise they also by the Judeans. And here is another mistranslation, which I'll probably discuss later in this series. Those who both killed Prince Yahshua, or the Lord Jesus, and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh. So they don't deserve his peace, right? Peace on earth is not for them because they are not pleasing to God and contrary to all men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Preventing us from speaking to the nations. Remember, we had just spoken a little while about how the Jews in Judea were preventing Paul from bringing the gospel to the other nations, preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved, for which to fill their errors at all times, but the wrath has come upon them at last. Now, we could take that right there. The wrath has come upon them at last, even though Paul had written this epistle to the Thessalonians, six years before he wrote Romans, 
right? He wrote the epistle to the Thessalonians when he was at Corinth in 51 AD. And he wrote the epistle to the Romans from the Troad, I'm fairly confident, and I can I did prove that, I believe, in my commentary on Romans. He wrote it from the Troad in 57 AD. So we can cross-reference those two passages where Paul's speaking about the Judeans and said, but the wrath has come upon them at last because God's going to crush Satan under the feet of the Romans shortly. And he says to the Thessalonians, but we brethren, having been bereaved of you for a measure of time in person, not in heart, more abundantly with much longing have been eager to see your presence because we have wished to come to you Indeed, I, Paul, both once and again, has the adversary, and that term adversary is Satan in the King James Version, because the adversary hindered us. So we see that who is it that's hindering Paul from visiting the Thessalonians? It's the damned Jews. And he said, Satan has hindered us. 1 Thessalonians chapter chapter 2. And he's saying the same thing in Romans 16.20, that the God of peace shall bruise Satan, the adversary, under your feet shortly. And then he describes that adversary as being the Jews who both killed Prince Joshua and the prophets. Now, in the King James Version, it says and their own prophets. But once again, when we look at all the ancient manuscripts, that word translated as their own is not in those manuscripts. Just like forefather. Their own must have been added to the text at a later point in history so that it would appear in the majority text, but it was not in any of the oldest manuscripts, and there are several ancient witnesses to that epistle. So it's not their own prophets. They killed the prophets. These Edomite bastards killed the prophets. And this shows, uh, as you said many times, and for Acts, that uh, the Jews were stalking Paul, and you know anyone who took on the ministry and continued what Paul was doing, they were always trying to stop Christianity wherever <laughs> wherever they were. These Edomites would always appear all throughout Europe trying to stop the spread of Christianity, right? It's their uh, innate nature, of course. Absolutely. They were trying to do it then, and they were behind all the persecutions of the Christians. If you read Tertullian, and if you read, I believe it's Minucius Felix, who, who was a 4th century Christian apologist. Tertullian was a third century Christian apologist, meaning that they wrote defenses of Christianity. An apology in the ancient Greek world was a defense, right? It wasn't merely, I'm sorry. It was a defense. So they wrote defenses of Christianity, right? So they both had attested that all the persecutions of Christians conducted by the Romans, were instigated by the Jews. And Paul here, in Romans 16.20 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
is identifying the Jews as Satan. The Jews are Satan, collectively. So we'll get back to Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, chapter two later on. But first, I want to discuss in the same light Second Thessalonians, chapter two, and Paul wrote his second epistle to the Thessalonians from Corinth in 51 AD, perhaps, or maybe late 50 or early 52. And that could be established through archaeology. That that's when he was in Corinth. And he wrote this second epistle to, to clarify some of the things, things which he said in the first epistle. So what, what does not survive to us is the epistle that the Thessalonians may have written back to Paul, for which a second epistle was necessary. We only have Paul's epistles. We never have the other side, right? And, and he had the same thing going on with the Corinthians as he was in Ephesus. And after he left Ephesus, he wrote, for, he wrote three epistles to the Corinthians, but the first one is lost. He wrote a an epistle to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians, but that one's lost. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians. That's the only way we know about it, but we don't have it. 2 Corinthians, he wrote after he left Ephesus, traveling through Macedonia, he was on his way to Corinth, and he wrote 2 Corinthians. So anyway, aside, that's another digression. Getting to 2 Thessalonians, written from... Corinth in 51 AD, Paul discussed the mystery of lawlessness, and he connected it to the operation of the adversary, or as the King James Version has it, the working of Satan. And in that chapter, he said in part, and I'm going to cite a, a large chunk of it, we're going to get all the way from verses 1 through 10, and this is from the Christiania New Testament, because the verbs the tense of the verbs are rendered correctly because Paul uses many present tense verbs here. And we have to note that if he's using present tense verbs, then he's speaking of his own time. Now we ask you, brethren, concerning the presence of our Prince Joshua Christ or Lord Jesus Christ in the King James and our gathering to him, that you are not to be quickly shaken from this purpose. And you should not be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as if by us, as though the day of the prince is present. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, apostasy had already come, and the man of lawlessness been revealed. The man of lawlessness was already revealed. The son of destruction the son of destruction is the man of lawlessness. Now, who did Paul say in Romans chapter 9, comparing the people that were in Judea, Jacob and Esau, who did he say was a vessel of destruction? The Edomites, the descendants of Esau. So here we have it, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the Edomite bastards that were ruling the temple in Jerusalem, as Paul was writing this. So in the next verse, in verse 4, he who is opposing, present tense, 
and exalting himself, present tense, above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. This isn't talking about Nero. This is talking about Jews. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, not the temple in Rome, not the praetorium of Caesar, the temple of God, representing himself that he is a god because the high priests were acting as if they had the authority of God when they didn't. Do you not remember that? Yet being with you, I had told these things to you, and you know that which now prevails, present tense, for him to be revealed in his own time. Meaning, although Christ already revealed it, people still wouldn't get it. But Paul says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently, the authority sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be gods, would prevail only presently until he should be taken out of the way. And then will the lawless be revealed. In other words, even though Christ has revealed these things, as Paul said, that the apostasy had already come and the man of lawlessness had already been revealed, the son of destruction, Paul understood that people still weren't going to understand it until, these, uh, until there really was a holocaust. He prevailing only presently, until he should be out of the way, and then will the lawless be revealed, future tense whom Prince Yahshua, Yahshua Christ, will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence. That's the real Holocaust that Christians are waiting for, which hasn't come yet. Whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, further describing that same phenomenon, the operation of the adversary, Satan in the King James Version, in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood, which we see from the Jews constantly throughout history, and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing, those who were victims, or those who are these Jews who are going to die because they don't have the Spirit of God, either way, because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. He's talking about the Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who were going to die along with the Jews because they didn't accept the love of the truth so that they could be saved. The Edomites were already vessels of destruction. They were never going to be saved. They were the ones pretending to be God. They were the ones in control of Jerusalem. And Paul identifies them in the present tense, sitting in the temple of Yahweh, in the present tense, he identifies, he identifies them as Satan, just as he identifies them as Satan in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and here in Romans 16.20. When we examine the events of the Gospels, and the book of Acts, it was not some spirit boogeyman whom Christ had already revealed. It was not some spirit boogeyman who was sitting in the temple pretending to be a god. Rather, it was the Edomites, namely the Sadducees, they were the high priests, pretending to have all the authority of God. In Romans chapter 9, 
Paul expressed a deep concern for his brethren and kinsmen according to the flesh, those who were Israelites, who had not yet turned to the gospel of Christ. Doing so, he compared Jacob and Esau and explained that the one were vessels of mercy while the others were vessels of destruction. Esau is the son of destruction here, and Paul was describing the Edomites who rejected Christ in this passage of 2 Thessalonians. Therefore, we see in both of these epistles to the Thessalonians that Paul thought the Edomite Judeans to be Satan or the adversary. These are those who rejected Christ, and they are the ancestors of today's Jews. The Apostle John thought that same thing. I should say he believed or professed that same thing where he said in his first epistle, I'm sorry, this might be his second epistle. I think it's the first. Little children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, this is the first epistle, chapter three, I believe. Even now, many Antichrists have been born. And that's what the Greek says. This is the Christogenian New Testament, from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us. They were already born. They came out from us. They were Edomites. But they were not from of us. They came out from the Judeans, but they were not of the Judeans because they were Edomites. For if they were of us, they would have abided with us because, as Christ said, my sheep hear my voice. But so that they would be made manifest that they are not all from of us. That's why they didn't abide with them. And that's, I'm sorry, that's 1 John chapter 2. I put the citation at the end of my quote. Paul considered the Edomite Jews of Judea to be the Satan of his time, and he told the Romans that they would be destroyed shortly. The only way he could have known this is from Daniel chapter 9. There we see the following prophecy, and it's an answer to Daniel's own prayer concerning Jerusalem, but we'll start with the end of the answer. It's, chapter, it's verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, which was in, it was actually culminated in the days of Ezra, 458-457 B.C. Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. That's 69 prophetic weeks, and each day being a year. That is 483 years, and it was roughly 483 years from the return of Ezra to Jerusalem after 457 B.C. to the beginning of the ministry of Christ in A.D. 28. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Paul must have understood the destruction of Rome, the pending destruction of, of Jerusalem, I'm sorry, the pending destruction of Jerusalem from this passage, because it's the only passage that puts it so explicitly. There are other places where the destruction of Jerusalem is prophesied in this manner. 
but this is the only passage that makes it absolutely explicit. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So after that 69th week, after Christ has begun his ministry, but not for himself, because Messiah would be cut off on behalf of the people, right? And that's Messiah the prince in verse 25. So it's the same prince that Daniel's about to mention here in verse 26. And the Judeo-Christians, the denominational churches, and especially the Jews, try to make this two different princes because they can't understand how the people of the prince could be the Romans instead of the damned Edomite Jews. They don't get Christian identity. They don't understand the history that we understand. They don't understand that the Romans are the real Judah, or they're part of the real Judah, and these Jews in Jerusalem are Edomites pretending to be Judah. So they can't understand how this prince can be, the, the people of the prince can be the people of the Messiah, because they think the Romans are Gentiles and the Jews are Judah. They've got it all backwards. In Christian identity, we can understand this all perfectly and literally, instead of trying to artificially make these two different princes when they're the same prince. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, and that, that's not a good translation, but that's how they translated it in the King James Version, trying to force the idea that these are two different princes. But the prince that shall come is Messiah the prince a couple of verses sooner, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of Christ are the Romans who shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. The people of the prince are the people of Messiah, the prince of verse 25. But this is denied by the mainstream theologians. And it goes on in Daniel to say that he shall confirm the covenant with many. And, and that's the promise of a new covenant. And Paul was able to determine that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, not only in this passage in Romans 16, 20, but also as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he said, the wrath has come upon them at last. Paul understanding that the destruction of Jerusalem, he was talking about the Judeans, that it was imminent. So, of course, Paul had the warnings of Christ recorded in Luke chapter 21, where Christ said, and when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And in verse 22 of Luke, 21, for these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, Paul had that. However, Paul must have known that this warning was also connected to the promised destruction of Jerusalem prophesied in Daniel as a retribution for the cutting off of the Messiah, because the Romans could be the kinsmen avengers for the murder of Christ. And that's the role they played. But in order to do that, they had to be his kinsmen. So Paul knew that the Romans were the people of the Messiah, as he had explained throughout this epistle. And they were the only portion of the people of true Israel who were in any position to destroy Jerusalem. 
Romans 16.20 is therefore a profession that the prophecy of Yahweh would be fulfilled and Jerusalem would be destroyed as it was written. The city was destroyed about 13 years after Paul wrote this epistle in 70 AD. I don't know that you have anything to add to that. Did I lose you? Oh, sorry. I had my mic muted. Sorry. Okay. I was going to say, was it a million that were butchered or was it a million and a half of, uh, that the Romans slaughtered? Well, well, it depends on, and, and you know, it depends on whose version you want to believe, right? If you want to believe Flavius Josephus, who was actually a general in the army, in, in, in the Judean army of Galilee, and I believe Josephus was an Israelite, he was a Levite, he wasn't a Jew or an Edomite. Josephus, I think he, the number he gives of the total dead from the rebellion of 65 to 70 AD, including those who were destroyed at Jerusalem, was 1.1 million, I think. Now, that didn't kill all the Edomites, but it certainly slowed them down for a long time. But Tacitus, the Roman historian, who was probably, I say probably, right, because I have no record that he was an eyewitness, so he was probably not an eyewitness, I think he put the number at about 500,000. So if you want to flip a coin between Josephus and Tacitus, that's fine. But it was a significant number of Judeans. And, and I'm sure that included some Israelites and Edomites. And Paul was praying for the Israelites that they would be converted to Christ because the apostles and the disciples of Christ, they had warning that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. They knew it was going to be destroyed. Christ told them very plainly in Luke chapter 21 that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. They knew to stay the hell out of there. They knew it. Even though James and some of his disciples stayed there until James himself was killed in Jerusalem by the Edomites, by the Sadducees, in 62 AD, they had that warning that when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies to get the hell out of there. So Paul was praying for the rest of the true Israelites who were in Judea that they would be converted to Christ and they would know to get out of there. You don't know to get out of there unless you believe Christ and, and the warnings in the gospel, right? So if you reject Christ, following the religious leaders at the time, you wouldn't have that warning, and you were probably going or, or taking a great risk of being killed in that, that crushing of Satan that Paul had prophesied in Romans 16.20. And um, Paul actually died before it happened, but um, when John writes his epistle, uh, he, he's like a few decades after, and, and as you said, he's still confirming that there's still around many more antichrists are being born. Uh, as you said, it slowed them down. They just moved their headquarters and uh, started new, a new strategy, right, to Absolutely. Uh, gradually infiltrate Christianity and um, change it to replacement theology and go from there. Absolutely. When, when Paul wrote Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Satan's seat is in Jerusalem sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be God. John wrote the Revelation 40 years later in the Revelation, in the message to the church, to the message to the churches, I forget which church, I'm trying to remember it. 
we see that Satan's seat is now in Pergamos. It had to be the message to the church at Pergamos, right? Satan's seat is in Pergamos. And, and Christ says that he knows that Satan's seat is there. So, so the rabbis of the Sadducees, later on, they're found in Babylonia. And later in history, a couple of hundred years later, the Talmud's written in Babylon. But there is also a Talmud that was written in Palestine right? The Jews were never completely run out of Palestine, even after Jerusalem was destroyed. So we have a Palestinian Targums, and we have a Palestinian Talmud, and we have a Babylonian Talmud. It's the Babylonian Talmud that eventually became the standard Talmud of the Jews. But originally, they must have moved their seat to Pergamos. Now, how it got to those other places, well, well, I guess the, that that happened over the course of the subsequent history, in in the in the Christian era, because by the time the Jews were writing the Talmud, they hadn't quite been ejected from the Byzantine Empire, but still, the Babylonian Talmud became the prevalent Talmud. But they are Satan. And they are the Antichrist. And, and Paul calls them Satan, and John calls them Antichrist. And Christ called them the synagogue of Satan in the Revelation, in 2.9 and 3.9. And they'll never stop until we're all dead, right? Until all white people are gone. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 verses 12 and 13 and to the angel of the church in pergamus write these things saith he that has the sharp sword with two edges i know thy works and where thou dwellest even where satan's seat is so the jews moved their operation to pergamus that's how i interpret that because jerusalem's destroyed <clears throat> by the time john wrote the revelation i believe <laughs> i'm sorry <clears throat> i believe that should suffice for this evening and thank you yeah. very much yeah no problem Th thanks for having me and um yeah we can get to corinthians next week uh praise yahweh god of israel god of our european race thank you thanks bill thanks for having me praise yahweh good night